Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I am your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. In this episode, we have Vishal Kapoor. Vishal is the head of innovation at Prospection, a data analytics solution provider for the healthcare industry. The company utilizes predictive analytics and machine learning with real-world healthcare data to unearth insight that help research, develop, and target better healthcare outcome for patients. I asked Vishal about his role in the company and how he helps develop the team to become a master innovator. He shared with me his view on this topic and the importance of asking the right and good question is essential. And more than that, Vishal discussed and shared how to build a culture that fostering innovation, which includes how to feel and learn fast. We then move on to discuss how prospection is innovating in the healthcare industry, and we shall share how they work on the far we work with the pharmaceutical companies and doctors in using real-world evidence and data to deliver insight into the use, value, and outcome of different healthcare issues and treatment. Now, by having this access to the patient insight, they allow the client to provide the most effective treatment pathway. And what is even more interesting is with the use of advanced data science technique and the availability of aggregate patient level data, he shared a real use case on how they help to identify the overlooked demographic segment for medical intervention. If you are a professional from the healthcare industry, this is certainly the episode for you to pick into the mind that helps to build innovation and using data science in the healthcare industry. If you are a senior manager or management executive, I would highly recommend tuning in to listen to how Vishal works to forage innovation and how prospection using real-world evidence data in making a healthier world. If you have any question for Visha or myself, make sure you send us an email or a message on LinkedIn. Finally, this episode is sponsored by the new program at DDA. It is an analytic leader mentorship program for senior manager and executive in the business team who want to develop a data-driven business to drive customer experience excellent. For a small one-off NOV, you get the book Unlimited strategy session with me for a full year. For more information about this program, please reach out to me. Last but not least, make sure you click the subscribe button before the interview starts so you will be the first to be informed on the latest episode on how business leaders run a high-performance organization using data science. I am your host, Jason Ten. Thank you for listening. Hello, hello, Vishal. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm so excited to finally meet. I think we have done a bit of rescheduling, but I'm so glad this finally happens. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here and thank you for being accommodating with the reschedules. <laughs> now, I heard in one of the previous interviews that you have experimented with the e-commerce and digital marketplace in your career. 
during your college days. Now, I would love to hear more about it and, and share with our audience about those adventures that you had in the early days. Sure. I have to say your team did the research very well. So it's interesting you found this nugget of information about me elsewhere. Uh, <laughs> so yes, I did experiment with a lot of projects around e-commerce and digital marketplaces during my college time. And in, in fact, very early on from, I did my engineering. So second year onwards, we were building softwares initially to start with uh, for local businesses around the university and things like point of sale software or inventory management software, et cetera. At that point, I had an internship in marketing and sales in, in Delhi, which is in the northern part of the country, and realized that there's a lot of demand for e-commerce building skill sets because IT industry was really booming in the southern part of the country. There's a lot of talent there, but not so much at that point in time in the northern parts of the country that where I did my internship. So I got back and, and started working, started picking up work on developing these e-commerce sites. We initially, we started off with static websites, but then got developing more dynamic websites over time. And, and that's how my journey started, which is really getting a couple of like-minded friends uh, in uni and then doing work that we really enjoyed in addition to studying. Amazing. That is must be quite an experience. Would you say this experience has played a role for you to become an advisor at Scoutry? Scoutly, yes. So that was an interesting phase of the career, Jason. So I just moved to Australia with Musigma, the company I was working for. And after a couple of years, decided I want to try out something new. At that point, I remember Googling top 50 startups in Australia and I reached out to majority of them and tried to meet the co-founders or the CTOs, trying to understand what they were doing in this space. And that was an amazing experience just to understand how startup ecosystem worked in Australia. And during that phase, I ended up meeting Caroline, who is the founder of Scoutly. At that time, she was she was working on another marketplace called Cookitoo, which is a concept based on cloud kitchens. So essentially renting kitchens uh, between the provider and the one who wants to rent out. And we met there, we really clicked, we worked on some interesting pieces of projects at that time. And unfortunately, she and her co-founder at that time decided to wind down the business. But interestingly, at that same time, Uber's co-founder, Travis Kalanick, secured over 130 million funding for the exact same concept that's cloud kitchens in the US. And that was quite interesting. And, and we were talking about how the idea was great and the timing perhaps was maybe a little, could have been better, et cetera. So that was how I got introduced to Caroline. And in Scout, when she started Scoutly, she took a break and then she started Scoutly and, and I got a call and she was asking me if I wanted to join her because what we really enjoyed was while I came from a data and tech background, our ability to really bring together the business strategy and tech together and really bring that in conjunction was something we really enjoyed in that first stint. So we decided, why not? Let's do it again. And then that's how I got introduced and started this role with uh, Caroline. Like you say, timing is so important. I mean, if the kitchen startup is still exists today, I think it plays so well into this whole concept of the dark kitchen 
that is popping up around the world, especially even in Australia, it would have been a different story, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and especially now, I would say during the COVID times when business, local businesses were really struggling with rents and, and real estate and all of that, I think this, this concept could have been such an amazing avenue for a source of income, for providing a source of income as well. So, so I agree, sometimes timing is, is everything in businesses, really. Now, please introduce to our audience about the company that you currently work for, Prospection, and share with us about your current role as the head of innovation here. Sure. It's super exciting to talk about Prospection. I've been with the company for one and a half years now, and yeah, it's fascinating. So Prospection is an Australian healthcare analytics product company, and our vision is to get the right patients on the right treatment at the right time. I was actually drawn to this vision quite a lot when I met uh, some of the senior management team during the process of joining. So that was powerful. We have a team of data scientists, engineers, and medical practitioners, and we work with pharma companies and research partners across the globe to understand gaps in diagnosis and treatment patterns, which informs their tactical execution. We also work with them on publishing real-world evidence on the efficacy of medical treatments for patients. And in some scenarios, we work with software providers to, to bring all of these insights into the hands of the practitioner to help them with their decision-making as well. So all the way from understanding patients to building evidence to then bringing that evidence in the hands of a practitioner who interacts with the patient. In terms of the company and the tech and every and all of that, we have proprietary algorithms and in-house technology platforms that we have developed ground up. We work with clients across Australia, Japan, Korea, the UK and the US. We were in the news recently because we raised our Series B and are looking to rapidly expand our presence across the globe. So that is a very brief summary of prospection and what we do. In terms of my role as head of innovation, my focus is really about enabling this scale across the globe by ensuring the products we have are adapting to the market and data realities in each country. Because healthcare, while it's such a common problem across the globe, the way it's administered and the way it works is so different. And therefore, a lot of work goes around in adapting our products to the markets that we are working in. So in addition to the Scaling of products in multiple countries, my, my work also focuses on developing newer products and continuing to push the dial further of our products in terms of our analytical maturity. In the last one and a half years, we have successfully expanded into the UK and the US, and we've already launched a couple of new products and brought it to life, which has personally been immensely gratifying. Right. I'm curious to know, in your view as a head of innovation, what is the mindset that makes someone a master innovator? That's a very interesting question. So I get that a lot. And we discuss that collectively as a group quite often as well. How do you codify some of these aspects as well, right? So maybe I'll break it down into three parts, right? What happens from a why perspective in the, in the mind of an innovator, the how of innovation and the what of innovation, right? So that, I kind of, that brings about a bit of structure. I think the basic why of any innovator out there is the underlying belief that things can be done in a better way. Any innovator you go across any industry, across any country, believes that there's something better that can be done. And that's that's a big 
driver and a big mental construct in the mind of an innovator. Now, getting to how that why is powerful and it's very inspiring and very encouraging. But then, the belief that something can be better is essentially a belief. We need to have to bring that belief to reality. We should have the ability to ask good questions. And we were discussing right at the outset about this, which is how do you ask better questions, right? How do you ask more fundamental, more atomic questions to get to the bottom of understanding something? An example I often give is you know, an average four-year-old typically asks around 390 questions. I read this somewhere, so I'm just quoting it as per the article. So an average four-year-old asks 390 questions to their parents on a daily basis. And that's understandable because you're learning so much, absorbing so much information. There's so much out there. And then the curiosity is massive early on. But as you get older, a typical adult asks around 20 questions a day, right? And that shift is remarkably, remarkably significant. And while we can argue that, you know, as an adult, you know a lot of things and you're supposed to know a lot of things. But I think that the innate curiosity to ask questions, even if some of that, sometimes those questions are uncomfortable, is what I believe lies at the very essence of driving innovation. How many times have we come across scenarios where we ask some question and, and we get a response like, why are you asking that question? Isn't that obvious? Right? And, and so, the, so the construct is sometimes prohibitive in terms of asking questions because as a group, we, we, we value expertise, we value answers more than we value questions, right? And that's an interesting paradigm. I use this term that I read in a, in a, in a really impactful book called Vuja Day, which really means seeing the familiar as if it's new. Vuja Day, which is seeing something, seeing the familiar as if it's new, is a very critical mindset paradigm that I would believe is critical to innovation. And a recent analogy that comes to mind is when Elon Musk and his team were trying to estimate how much the first SpaceX rockets would cost. They could have just looked around at all the products in the market because technically we had been to space, so all the ingredients were out there and there was a way of doing it. But his team actually then went further down and instead of looking at and accepting expert-based arguments, they tried to figure out where the necessary parts of a rocket and then went on to figure out how much of these raw materials each of these parts would cost. And the result was fascinating. SpaceX built a rocket for 2% of the typical price that rockets are built for. That's the power that I keep talking about, which is sure you understand there's a traditional wisdom out there and absolutely important, but also being able to ask and understand and understand the different moving parts is just as critical. So, for me, that's the biggest mindset shift. And in terms of the what, you definitely need the technical skills or the business skills, etc. But that mindset is what I believe forms the essence that then results in a drive to learn the skills that's necessary to get to a better future that a lot of innovators like us try to dream of. I agree. And I think asking the question and asking the right question and again and again to understand what is the fundamental or the big picture of the problem is so, so important. Because until you get to the bottom of exactly why that is, 
often the time you spend in solving the problem might be actually wasted because it's actually not the real problem that, that, that is being solved. At all. Absolutely. If you've seen the movie Moneyball, there's a beautiful scene out there where Brad Pitt asks his coaches, what is the problem that we're trying to solve, right? And, and they all, what they're talking about are often the symptoms and not the causes. And, and that's a powerful statement that I put, I use a lot of times in, in, in conversations just to emphasize the importance of asking the right question and focusing on causes rather than symptoms. Exactly. And on that note, how do you foster innovation and risk-taking in your team to empower them to be a fearless innovators then? That's an important one, Jason, because the culture you create, the environment you create is super critical. So if I had to abstract, I'd point out two main things, right? The first one is the importance of focusing on outcomes rather than outputs. As simple as it might sound, the challenge with most innovators and rightly so, is that they have created an output and that is very dear to them. And it's normal because you've created it from nothing, right? And that attachment sometimes to the output instead of the outcome results in losing the big picture view for a lot of innovators. And therefore, I always talk about the need to detach from an output and focus on an outcome. And what that really means on a day-to-day basis is that as a team, and we had this scenario the other day where we may develop something that potentially can may never be used, potentially that will be improved five years from now, and sometimes that will be used immediately, right? And that's okay because that freedom to fail and the freedom to change direction as we are innovating is super critical if we are to solve the big picture problem that we are trying to solve. Otherwise, we get too fixated with what we have created and that fixation perhaps is, is not productive enough, right? So that's that's one of the big things, the focus on outcomes and not, not necessarily the day-to-day outputs that we are creating as a team, right? And I think once you have instilled that belief within the team and, and within the group, what then needs to happen is if you're failing, we've got to fail faster, right? So it's absolutely okay to fail, but we've got to find a way to fail faster. And I believe that if you are attached to out, anchored toward outcomes, and you're failing fast, and you have an amazing group of talent that we have, we will find a way to get there eventually, right? And that needs to happen in tandem. And that is what I call the culture that I have always talked about needs to be there within the team, that that freedom to fail, but the need to fail faster. And I I use this quote uh, a lot with my colleagues as well, which is, what's the fun if you don't dream? But then what's the point if you don't bring something to life? And that balance is important to have within the group. And that's what I would call as the two big ones that I tend to focus on, Jason. Nice one. Now, coming back to prospection, from my research, it seems that the company is running a huge operation, helping the healthcare sector a lot. So the question that comes to mind is how this quantity, huge quantity of high-quality healthcare data is being collected in the first place. Right. And the caveat is that we do not collect data. And I've got to start with that, right? So healthcare in general is one of the most, I've worked in banking and insurance and and retail uh, prior to this, but in terms of pure data availability and data accessibility, healthcare is quite fragmented. You have data sometimes sitting in 
the software of the doctors, essentially the GP systems or the specialist systems. You have data sitting sometimes in hospital systems and some data gets created from an insurance perspective. The data is definitely huge. What we are focused on is developing the tech to be able to work with any kind of data set that we are typically required to work with in any country. Every country, again, has a slightly different maturity with respect to data availability and, and data accessibility. So while there are different elements of that, what we focus on is building a common, is, is a platform that is able to ingest any kind of data out there and bring it in a form that is always consistent, which is, which is quite powerful because that reduces the variability of insights people have access to. So we're not in the business of collecting data. We work with existing data providers, but apply algorithms on top of that to deliver patient insights. So there must be some massive challenge in doing all this. What are the major challenges that the company is facing and how you guys are overcoming that? The challenges are massive for a variety of reasons. The first challenge that we would have is the sheer volume of data that we are dealing with. Right? Just to give you an example, we... we we recently launched in the US and we've been working on data sets that are as big as 35 million patients with every single claim that they have made in the data set, all the doctors they have seen to, all the diagnosis that they've had, all the surgical procedures that they would have. So the volume of data that we're dealing with in itself is, is a massive challenge, not just for us, but I think any player in this space really, because that's a big not to crack. And our platforms have been designed to work on that scale. So I think that's that's where the engineering company comes into picture. So that, that's one kind of challenge, Jason, that we're dealing with when we're managing such disparate data brought together. Right. The second one is also around, I would believe the regulations are also quite important in this space. And I know we've talked about a bit about that earlier as well, but Regulations play a massive role in what you can and cannot do in each country, each kind of data set, depending on what protocols exist, right? So being able to develop a system that abides by those regulations and protects the privacy and protects the sanctity of the data and handle the sheer volume that we're talking about is, is what I would call as, as two of the biggest focus areas for us, Jason. I suspect that the... Data privacy is also another challenge that you guys are facing, especially the patient care or the healthcare data. They are very sensitive, privacy sensitive in nature. How do you guys deal with that aspect of the privacy then? Right. And like I said, that is a cornerstone for us in terms of how we operate as a business, right? So we have dedicated data and partnerships team that focuses extensively on ensuring that these regulations are abided across different data sets that we work with in different countries that we are currently operating in, right? For example, in Australia, we work with the Services Australia, essentially the government of Australia, where we use a lot of information, patient longitudinal history that's generated through the Medicare claims and all of that piece of information. And by design, we, we are supposed to have certain set of best practices embedded within the business, both in terms of how we collect data, how we process data, and how we present data. 
And those are, we call them in our so the framework we use is five saves. And we were, especially in Australia, based on that framework, we recently had an audit with Services Australia as well, who, who were ensuring that some of these adherence and compliance processes are adhered to. So, so that went really well and, and which kind of establishes a trust in the brand as well. And so far, that, that's been a big reason, Jason, for why we've been successfully working with the government, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical practitioners, etc. I think digital transformation has been going on for some years now. And especially because of the pandemic over the last two years, it's really picking up its pace. And I would say that is probably exactly the same thing of digital transformation in the area of the hospital and the healthcare institution. Do you think that has been crucial and helped with the whole operation and the prospection and growth as well? Absolutely, it has, Jason. So what COVID has brought out as an imperative as far as the health community is concerned is, is the fact that one, the adoption of things like digitization, telehealth, et cetera, is more important than it ever was, right? And I think that's, we've seen that in our experience as well, we've, we've seen a massive increase in adoption of telehealth across Australia. So that's definitely been a big driver. And, and I think we're heading in the right direction and, and the pandemic situation has provided the right impetus for this to become something at the forefront of our discussions. What the whole COVID situation has also resulted in is focus on using real-world evidence, real-world data as a key aspect of decision-making in the government as well as with pharmaceutical companies. So what do I really mean by that, right? So we have generally, there's a lot of focus. You think of how a drug's launched and what happens during clinical trials, there's a lot of focus, a lot of tests done on how good a drug is on a certain group of population that's being trialed on. And that forms the basis of a lot of drugs being approved for for the masses in any country. The real-world evidence focus, what is becoming increasingly important and is coming as a realization to different parties within the ecosystem is that how do we use the actual data based on how patients are consuming the drug, how patients are adhering to the drug, dosing that is being given to them, and what is the outcome that they are seeing as a result of that drug is being discussed more and more, especially right now, right? So if you talk about Services Australia as well, uh, the government of Australia, we were talking about the use of real-world evidence as a key metric has become increasingly common in many conversations. So I think that's, that's been another massive shift that we have been seeing. And while the focus was always there on real world evidence, just being, just highlighting the need for it to be a much bigger discussion than it ever was. Because again, with COVID, when you're bringing drugs into market, the time for clinical trials is fairly limited, et cetera. So you're bringing stuff there and then you're bringing it to the market and then you're trying it out based on actual, looking at the efficacy based on actual real world evidence. So I think that's that's been a major shift that we have seen as well in the market, Jason. Given of what you guys do at the prospection, do you guys get involved with this helping out with the evidence data for the COVID-19 vaccine? And yeah, I would love to hear a bit more about it. If it is sensitive, I'm happy not to talk about it though. <laughs> not exactly on COVID. Our work's not exactly being COVID-focused, which is you know real-world data on COVID specifically. But what we have been doing a lot of is 
trying to understand the impact of COVID on other indications as well. So, for example, now that patients are unable to see a specialist and are unable to get some tests done in time during COVID, what is the impact of that on timely diagnosis, right? On timely access to treatment. So, so there's a lot of work happening in that space. And I think it's brought about a massive shift in thinking as well in terms of how do we adapt as a community to better address some of the flow-on impacts that COVID is creating across many different disease areas that we're focused on. So apart from that evidence data in understanding the efficacy of the drug, what are other things that prospection do in the healthcare industry with data and analytics? Sure. So I would say absolutely drug efficacy is a big part of it, right? However, as I mentioned earlier, our motto is to have the right patient on the right treatment at the right time, right? So the time part of it is just as critical to our analytics products. What do I mean by that, right? So you can be on the right drug six months after you're supposed to be on that drug, but the ideal scenario is how you should have actually been on that drug six months before you started that drug, right? So how do you understand patient journeys, identify bottlenecks in terms of getting to the right treatment at the optimal time is just as an important focus for us in addition to studying what happens when you get on that right treatment. So that's that's an important part. The other one is also how do you improve diagnosis, right? So you can only get to the right treatment after you've been diagnosed with the right indication that you're supposed to be treated for. And these are some facts. Almost around 30% of patients would be misdiagnosed with a lot of different conditions before they are diagnosed with the actual issue that needs to be solved for. So how do we reduce the time to diagnosis as well is, is a big focus for us. Finally, the part is all of this is our great insights, but how do you work with the medical practitioners, with the medical community to share all of this information so that they can use this information and they can make support their decision, which supports their decision making when they're seeing a patient? Because let's face it, they have massive caseloads. They're working, they've been insanely busy with everything that's happening, not just during COVID, but even otherwise, right? So it is important for us to push some of these. Uh, facts and in pieces of information for them to, to aid in their decision-making. So that's another big focus for us, Jason, where we are working with medical practitioners and trying to integrate some of these insights into the medical practitioner's software systems so that when they are seeing a patient based on our algorithms that run on the back end, we have some recommendations come up in terms of what the next best action is as well. It sounds like a machine plus the human approach to do the diagnosis. I think it's probably the first time I am hearing this in the space of the uh, healthcare. And I think that is fascinating, but at the same time, because it's healthcare, it is a matter of life and death and the regulation. It probably make it a lot harder for you guys to, with the implementation. How do you get around with those challenges so that it can be implemented? That's absolutely true, Jason. I think that these are some really important decisions that we are that anyone can make in, the, in their day-to-day -day lives, right? So that therefore we work very closely with leading experts as well, key opinion leaders in the space, etc., 
And none of these insights actually or recommendations are not evangelized or pushed through unless there is one, the math behind it needs to be absolutely perfect, right? And the second is it needs to go through the right chains of approval that any such decision typically should and ideally go through. So we, we go through that process, go through the necessary approvals, work with key opinion leaders to bring it to life. And I think that's that's the process that is imperative for this to become something that is useful for the community. Otherwise, it is just something that's a great insight, but has not gone through the right rigors that it should go through, given the criticality of what we are solving for here. Good stuff. Now, please share with us some of the real-life examples of improved treatment outcomes for that were brought by Prospection. Absolutely. And this is a real example from last year where we were working with a leading pharmaceutical company in the UK on a rare disease that is highly underdiagnosed and has a very low survival rate. For the people who are not from this world, survival rate really means how long does a patient live post-diagnosis and or treatment, essentially. So this indication is extremely rare, therefore highly underdiagnosed, and patients have a very low survival rate. And based on literature, patients are typically misdiagnosed and are lost in the system for close for anywhere between 9 to 50 months before they get a confirmed diagnosis. Right. And as you can expect, these are only the patients who get diagnosed eventually after the nine to 50 months. Even with that, there are almost around 70 percent, you know, depending on the country you're looking at, but anywhere around 50 to 70 percent who never get diagnosed. And such such is the rarity of the condition and such is the rarity of the disease we are talking about here. Because the condition is rare, what that means is there's a lack of awareness of the disease within the the community as well, right? And that's a significant contributor, which results in delays in referrals to the specialists and then potential misdiagnosis happening, etc. And because this was last year and COVID was really hurting the world, there was growing concerns that this access limitation to doctors would only increase these uh, misdiagnosis and underdiagnosis rates. So we worked with the client and NHS to develop what eventually got named as Patient Finder, a new product that got named as Patient Finder, which actually helped them understand what are the underdiagnosis rates in microgeographies within England and Wales, right? And not just underdiagnosis, but we were also able to bring in factors like if there is underdiagnosis, is it because there there are not enough referrals happening in the first place? Or there are referrals, but potentially the diagnosis is not right. So it's not just the outcome metric, but also the impact metric like referrals, et cetera, that that we were able to bring to light. Now, what that helped the client do is is create tailored awareness programs in microgeographies because you know that in this geography you need a certain kind of awareness program versus another geography you need a different kind of awareness program etc and and almost work to increase this diagnosis rates referral rates etc this kind of a solution was first of a kind where we are almost brought together data from gp systems and from specialists from hospitals from Specialist hospitals, uh, census was another source, for example, that we all bring in together and creating this view. 
And I think this was one such example uh, that I was very closely involved in, which, which, which was extremely gratifying. And I have to say this was one of the most gratifying projects that I have worked on ever since I've been in the world of analytics, because the impact of that was actually human lives. And that's a really powerful thing to sleep on. And that's what you want to end your day with, perhaps. So that's just one example of, of the kind of work we do, Jason, across the globe. That's amazing. Now, in summarizing of what you guys do at the prospection for the healthcare, data science, as well as your role as a head of innovation, my final question for you is how do you balance in bringing all of those things together at the same time, take a fine line of develop an in-house application tools as opposed to get it done quickly by using the external readability available resources. How do you take that balance as a tech company, as a growth company? That's again a very interesting question. And this discussion of do you build or do you buy, the build and buy concept is often something we hear about in the market quite a bit. So our perspective on that, Jason, is there are some aspects that we know are integral to what makes us unique in the space, right? So, and, and our tech and engineering and the ability to kind of handle that massive volume of information and run our proprietary algorithms are quite unique in that space. That's what makes us who we are as a company. And that's what that's where we add the most value. And I think there are some aspects like that that we tend to develop in-house capabilities in, and we believe that's integral to what we stand for and, and what we represent. But then there are other aspects that potentially are not as significant in, in terms of whether we choose to do it ourselves or potentially can we get, you know, get the right tools out there in the market and enable that. So I think that's the ability to understand what makes us unique and continue to build that expertise within the team versus what do we need to accelerate some other aspects that we can potentially better leverage with you know, smarter tools out there in the market, et cetera, is what we try to balance. And, and that's, uh, that's been working really well for us, especially now that we've expanded into other countries as well. And we're getting a lot of validation on some of those decisions, I'd say. Fascinating. Now, to conclude this interview, I have two final questions for you. Number one, what is your most important first principle? I'll quote Albert Einstein on this. I have no special talents. I am only passionately curious. That's my strength, right? I think that's what is the first principle that I always go to and that has helped me navigate through some of the varying challenges that I've encountered across different industries, across different environments in general. As long as you can be curious, you'd figure out a way to get to the answers. I love it. What is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? So this is a book I bought, I guess, a couple of weeks back and I've finished it in a week's time, which is which is quite rare given that <laughs> there are quite a few important things happening as well in parallel. But there's this book called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, which is a fascinating book and it talks about how life is non-linear and the rewards of continued effort is 
disproportionately big. And what it really tries to say is that sometimes we get so fixated on short-term wins and short-term losses that we don't realize that sometimes growth happens non-linearly and being okay with that process is just as important if you have to have the longevity in your career, in your personal life, etc. I think that's that's such an important lesson that I would perhaps give to my younger self because as you're younger, you, you're so driven by some milestones like promotion, for instance, right? Uh, promote, you're driven by that, those things and promotion happens to be one is an output, not an outcome. It's, it's a step towards something, right? So I think when you start appreciating that for what it is, it just gives you better opportunities to have the longevity that you need rather than the short-term focus and have great mental health in that process as well, because that I'm a big believer of mental health and I, and I believe that's really relevant in today's world. And I think this perspective really dawned on me as I've gotten older and reading this book was an absolute refreshing activity. And there's one um, quote that is the author's best quote, and I love that quote. It's there on my study as well. It says, heroes are heroes because they are heroic in behavior, not because they won or lost. Right. And I think that's such a powerful, such a powerful statement that makes you appreciate the journey not worry too much about the destination as well. So I think that's definitely a book I'd recommend my younger self. (laughs) Nice one. I haven't heard that one before, so I definitely would have to check it out. And uh, once again, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on to the podcast and share the idea and some of the works that you guys are doing at the uh, Prospection, as well as that whole innovation mindset in the context of data and analytics. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure having you. I must say I uh, listen to all your podcasts because I really love the content that you're creating here uh, through bringing, by bringing different minds together. So thank you for that, Jason. And thank you for having me. Thank you for your kind words.